The search for Atlantis has been ongoing since the Greek philosopher Plato first wrote of it in 350 BC. He described Atlantis as an island larger than Libya and Asia Minor put together, located in the Atlantic, just beyond the Pillars of Hercules. Now, this was generally assumed to be the Strait of Gibraltar. It is said to have been protected by the god Poseidon, who made his son Atlas king and namesake of the island and ocean that surrounded it. As the Atlanteans grew powerful, their ethics declined. Their armies eventually conquered Africa, reaching as far as Egypt and Europe. In the wrath of other gods, the city of Atlantis is said to have been wiped out and most presumed to have been sank and swallowed up by the ocean. But new scientific evidence and discoveries made in recent years are causing us to think twice and reconsider much of what we assumed. Join us tonight, if you dare, as we dive, dig deeper in order to find the real lost city of Atlantis. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now, when you wanted to tackle Atlantis, you're the history person. I like, I'll own that. I like monsters and conspiracy theories and, and all that kind of wacky stuff. History, I barely got through history in high school. <laughs> and the only reason I got my history credits in college was because I took military history. So at least it was about, you know, warfare. And and it was really medieval his, military history. So it was swords and, and shields and bows. So that was just one along with D&D. It was fascinating. I was going to say, yeah, setting your pace for a dungeon master. But as I sat down to look into Atlantis, it's kind of like Oak Island, man. I mean, this was your story. I, I kind of, I found some things interesting to me. You, you talked about, you know, like you said, it was first mentioned by Plato, this, this advanced utopian society. And of course, when they say advanced, they mean advanced by the standards of the day. You know, Atlantis wouldn't have spaceships and, and, and things like that. that no, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. but what was it? A hundred thousand elephants and, you know, a million chariots and all that. It was advanced by the time. And like you said, some of their metalworking blacksmithy, they had kind of some technology. That yeah, was, they, they had material wealth, edge. technological advancement, and military power. But then they became, allegedly became corrupted by this wealth, sophistication, and strength. And, and the Atlantis that, that we think of, if they would ever to be found and, and they would still be there, they would, we, they would probably go on to kill and enslave the entire world the way we talk about it mm. now. Yes. But Plato had a very different sort of view of it. He, he again, you know, was advanced and, and it suffered from its advancement and eventually would fall out of favor with the gods and, and allegedly was sunk beneath the ocean. Mm hmm. But I found some potential locations for Atlantis, but I think you probably have more of the history of it a little bit if you want to talk about that. Well, I think before I get into it, I, I want to make sure I share a couple theories on the lost city of Atlantis for at least my story, my, my side of the story, as we would say. I want to state the things I'm going to talk about take place in none other than the Sahara Desert. Uh, not exactly what you would think about when you think of a water coastal Atlantean city. So, yep, you, you heard me correct. The, the Sahara Desert. 
But before you turn the podcast off, just give us a moment here, uh, a few minutes of open-mindedness. First off, it's been scientifically proven that the Sahara Desert has not always been the vast wasteland of heat and desert. Oh, no, 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 no. Quite the contrary. The Sahara has been particularly plagued over the past centuries by small tilts in the Earth's plate placement of the sun, which alters it, obviously, over time. When this has occurred over the past 8,000 years in particular, it allowed more solar heat to directly make contact with that area. In turn, it has produced more rain in other areas, such as Africa, and less rain, obviously, in this area. Imagine, if you will, the Sahara at one time being almost like a jungle-like setting thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Secondly, also there's been new discoveries. Pictographs have been found in the Sahara, noticing a change with the indigenous people and the herds of livestock that's recorded there with the cave drawings that at the time lived in the area and grazed their herds there. Now again, the type of animals, cows and stuff like that, that that were depicted here obviously would not have done well in the Sahara Desert that we know today. If you chronological these in order, it's become evident that there was a gradual increase of livestock that kind of grew to a bell curve and then became a you know massive, if you will, and then just seemed to drop off entirely. Now, scientists are now speculating that the area was quite possibly overgrazed, causing the plant life to be stripped away, and in turn, the roots of the plants then could not retain erosion of the rainfall that they had at the time, um, and we kind of start this culture of out of balance. Thirdly, further proof of the dramatic terrain changes has been proven. The Sahara Desert that we know today was, as I said, more of a tropical area with lush plant life, but further back, it was partially covered by shallow seas. In just the past 10 years, multiple groups of skeletal whales have been found buried beneath the sands. Over 40 ancient whale skeletons, to be more specific, some as long as 50 foot in length. So, you know, if you come across one or two, you might argue and say, well, you know, somebody's drug that in. But I mean, we're talking 40 currently found 50 foot length or smaller whale skeletons found in the desert unless you're extremely bored and really strong you're not going to be just dragging these things up so it's starting to prove that sure enough the the area of the sahara desert at least at one time was partially underwater these skeletal remains may date back as much as 40 to 50 million years ago now unrelated but i have to bring it up on the podcast these whale skeletons are so old where the fins are today on a whale are more described as legs. Not to, to rain on your parade with that one, but if you look at a modern whale skeleton, they still look very leg-like. Agreed. So. Agreed. Part of these whales, however, have feet with bones. Oh. Okay. Taking okay. it a little bit further than the yeah. legs. And there, of course, is another speculation that whales weren't always confined to water, but possibly more of like um, an alligator or crocodile that could hunt on land and as well as by sea. Now, first off, theory number one that I'm going to share, and then I'll hand it over to Bill and I'll come back to my, my second theory. This is of a gentleman by the name of Thomas Bertram, uh, the expedition that took place in 1930, October 1930 to be more precise. 
The first European to cross this area of the Arabian Desert, which, by the way, is 250 square miles, uh, this region of harsh and vast desert has been dubbed the Empty Quarter because nothing much at all survives in this area. It was first introduced uh, to the area during World War II, or this gentleman, Thomas Bertram, was first introduced to it at that time. He was a survivalist. He knew how to survive. Uh, he even served as a, a con consultant to the Sultan at that time during the World War II. Fifty-nine days was the amount of time for this expedition. Now, Thomas Bertram did not report to his bosses or really tell anybody where he was going. He just kind of like vanished. And the reason why he did that was his intellect, um, his wisdom, if you will, was, was sought after. He knew they would never let him go into the desert. And this was one of his long life goals. So he didn't tell anybody, but uh, he kind of developed and put together a crew, a uh, survivalist group, if you will, with some of the uh, indigenous tribe members and stuff. And for 59 days, he just took off into this area, the empty quarter of the desert, uh, in secret and did not report anything. Now, on February 5th, 1931, he reappears and he had collected over 400 new species during his expedition. And sure enough, he was alive and well. Some of the newspaper uh, articles and stuff had even reported he had been missing. There was there was rumors that he had been abducted, being held for ransom, uh, that he had died. Uh, but you know, here he pops up out of the desert, alive and well, proving that you know you can survive out there even in those harsh settings. It wasn't just the scientific species that he obtained, but also rumors and stories that he got from other indigenous tribe members of a lost city. He did take scrupulous notes and included uh, the first-hand stories in a book that he later published called The Arabia Felix. This book quickly caused, uh, we'll say, a stir among the European citizens in particular. One of these in particular was a man by the name of T.A. Lawrence. Now, you might recognize him more famously as Lawrence of Arabia. Now, Lawrence wrote to his friends, I am convinced that the remains of an ancient Arab civilization is to be found in that desert. I have been told by the Arabs that the ruined castles of the great King Odd, son of Kin Odd, uh, has been seen there wandering with tribes in that religion, in that region. There's always some substance, he says, to these Arab tales. While you can't, you know, like any tale, you can't take it for on the chin for a hundred percent, but there's always some seed of truth. He even made plans for his own expedition. However, he never made it. He was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident in 1935. However, before he died, Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, gave the mysterious city a nickname that stuck, and that is Atlantis of the Sands. Now, there's a lot of stuff there. You're like, Atlantis of the Sands, does that really mean anything? What did he allude to here? Could it be a real location? More so, could this reference be to the lost city of Atlantis that we're talking about tonight in the podcast? Within the Quran, there is a reference to a lost group of people known as the Odd in an area of the Edom, which is in that quarter, if you will, that still confuses and baffles scholars. There's not a lot written about them, and they kind of disappeared as quickly as they appeared, leaving a lot of mystery. Now, the tribe does not appear in the books of Judaism or Christianity. A little curious, since all three of those religions gain from multiple history in this same area. 
does not contain other stories from the same area with this, such as Moses, King Solomon, Noah, the flood. All of these are shared within the three religions, but nothing of the Edom or the Odd. A little strange, I thought. Have you ever noticed how you're... What you say is a little odd. A little odd. Uh, yeah. Good one, good one. I didn't pick up on that one. Have you not considered how your Lord dealt with odd? Uh, this is a quote out of the Quran. The tribe of Iram, who had lofty pillars like that of which were produced, not produced in any of all the land. There's references and descriptions here of these massive Persian-style cities, massive doors, massive columns, which kind of allude back to one of our other podcasts, and that is of giants. So there's some speculation. I know this is a little far-fetched, but possibly the Atlanteans could have been a giant race, which obviously would give them kind of a leg up, if you will, in technology, lifting capability, building armies, you know, all of this type stuff. They were known to build huge cities and towers and these pillars that dwarfed any others in the entire region. It also goes on to state that the odd denied the signs of the Lord, disobeyed his messages, and followed the command of their very stubborn tyrant or king. Yet after all these warnings, the people of Odd refused to renounce their wicked ways. As a matter of fact, it almost turned them, it seemed to be more sinister, hostile, and overtake any others that dare come to their doorsteps. So Allah sent a terrific drought to afflict the people, but they still would not listen. So finally, the odd saw clouds coming in the distance, and they believed finally the rains were coming, but they were dreadfully wrong. It was instead the desert sandstorm that struck against their city walls and eroded it away to a cataclysmic event. Now, as written again in the Quran, the only place where we can find any record of this, as for odd, they were destroyed by a ferocious bitter wind which Allah unleashed on them nonstop for seven days, I'm sorry, seven nights and eight days. So you would have seen its people lying dead like trunks of trees amongst the palm trees. Again, that reference seems to me there would be an oversized body. The Quran says, do you see any of them left alive? No. Which kind of goes back to Plato's philosophy that something cataclysmic happened. They were wiped out, basically wiped off from existence. Now, in studying this theory a bit more, it seems the reference of the tribe of Odd and the sheer size of their castles, towers, pillars, again, I suggested uh, may possibly a giant race. There are some that speculate this actually is the lost race of giants, possibly the Atlanteans. And we find with sketches in reference to like in army battles, some of these were 12 to 15 foot in height in comparison, twice the height of those that they were doing battle with. It opens a lot of doors, not saying it answers any questions firmly, but uh, it, it alluded, like I said, to our podcast that we did about uh, giants, uh, especially we, we referenced giants in America, but you know, giants have been recorded all over the world. So that's my first theory. Like I said, I, I found a series of potential Atlantean locations. Now, Plato made it clear that Atlantis had to be sailed to. It was, it was, you had to travel over the ocean to get to Atlantis. And it was past a place that the Greeks referred to as the Pillars of Hercules, which we believe to be the Strait of Gibraltar, the mouth of the Mediterranean. Right. 
And he said there that lay an island larger than Libya and Asia together. Somewhere west of the Strait of Gibraltar is where we would believe that Atlantis would be. But when you look at the findings of, of where people have found mysterious underwater structures, which is kind of what I'm going to touch on a little bit, there's really only one that even matches that criteria that I could discover. The first one that I found was, was a, a diver stumbled across some man-made structures near Japan. Hmm. That's a little far, far afield. But as the waters receded from the remote Japanese island of Yenuguni, basically the other side of the globe from where Atlantis was supposed to be, a mysterious formation was revealed, which is now known as the Yanaguni Monument. Uh, so the diver's name was Kihachiro Eritake, and he saw step-like formation, like terraced fields underneath the ocean. Uh, he compared it to the Machu Picchu ruins, which, if you know, that kind of Aztec temple structure. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so he observed and, and said that this spectacle covered an area the size of five football fields. Uh, but basically, it was, a, it was a huge temple with smooth sided walls rising up to a, a summit that was the height of an eight story building. And they had flights of stone steps on out from the base on every side and, and of regular style. So it was, it, this was not, this was man made. This wasn't something that, that just happened. Right. Not a natural effect. Now, of course, I think it was only just like this single Machu Picchu style ruined temple thing. So obviously it wasn't a whole civilization, but still it was this fascinating underwater finding. And anytime you find anything underwater, people immediately go, oh, is it oh, Atlantis? It's Atlantis, yes. So, so next I had uh, the discovery of Akrotiri. This was an ancient city over 3,000 years old, buried 200 feet beneath the ground. It was a settlement on the Greek island of Santorini. Uh, now, in its prime, Akrotiri would have had streets intricately paved with stone, uh, a town square lined with picturesque houses, uh, three and four stories tall, with colorful stones decorating the houses. Now, the ruins of Akrotiri suggest a highly advanced civilization uh, for its time, which was flourishing before suddenly ending. Now, Akrotiri was buried by a volcanic eruption, which was, a, you know, uh, Plato did describe in some of his writings. Cataclysmic event. Uh, and a blanket of ash 200 feet thick covered the entire island. The empty volcano then collapsed into the ocean, changing the shape of the island forever, so essentially flooding this area. Uh, the eruption of Santorini in 1650 BC decimated all life on the island and basically erased this civilization. So again, you have another lost civilization that, that disappeared, you know, at least partially beneath the waves. So again, everybody's like, oh, it must be Atlantis. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not really in the right spot. It's close, but not really. You then have the discovery of what was called the Road to Atlantis. Uh, this I was, remember this one. I saw some yeah, stuff on this. This was an underwater path spotted in the Pacific Ocean. Now, while using a submarine to explore a range of volcanic mountains of the coast of Hawaii, oceanographers came across a well-preserved, what they called brick road at the bottom of the sea, some 3,300 feet underwater, almost 3,400. Now, it looked like a brick road, literally. It looked like a brick road laid out. I saw the pictures, the videos, yes. Now, the researchers have explained that, that the brick-like pattern was actually a natural occurrence mm -hmm. known as hyaloclastite. It was apparently a volcanic rock formed in high-energy eruptions where the rock fragments settled to the seabed and kind of create this pattern. Now, I will say, obviously, I'm not a scientist, and scientists get paid way more, and they're much smarter than I am. I am telling you, with the video I saw of this, had I been a scuba diver, I would have <laughs> fully been... I mean, hook, line, and sinker. This is a man-made road. Well, it was like perfect. There, there is a, a scientific explanation for the fractures. They say, but it basically fractures at ninety-degree angles, so it does look like a pattern of bricks. But it's the likely the result of heating and cooling stress from multiple eruptions. Now, the one that is most likely, if if 
and and I'm and this is not is to throw any cold water on on your your talk you, you're talking about Africa and whatnot, and that is they did find that in my research, but I'll let you expand on that. But off the Atlantic coast of Spain, which is the closest they've ever come to actually following Plato's directions, researchers said, okay, let, let's look off the coast of Spain. This is where Pl- Plato wrote about it. The, the 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 searchers did consult an additional mysterious text that they said, quote, we won't share that in a public forum at this stage. So I don't know if they, they're running the risk of raised. ridicule or what, but they used data from commercial satellites to pinpoint a possible location and searching off the Spanish coast, they found large circles that could have been the bases of ancient towers, uh, ruins that they claimed to be the Temple of Poseidon, which you said you know Poseidon mm-hmm. was the one who was sort of the god of that city, mm-hmm. a greenish-blue patina coating on some of the ruins, which all those are details that yes. Plato himself did confirm. Yes, and they also found the remains of a seawall, as well as signs of an ancient tsunami that, that rushed in to claim this city. Uh, but you're going to be baptized in water. Yeah. A tsunami is the cataclysmic definition of yeah, that. Yeah, if you want to, that, that's a cataclysmic event, which could have destroyed an entire city back in those days and, and essentially would have been you know lost beneath the waves. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's literally what it is, right? They did date material from the site and dated somewhere between ten and 12,000 years old. So... It, it fits the timeline. It yeah. fits the location. It, it's it's where Plato said it spot. might be. So it, it's a, it's a pretty good contender. And I believe you have you 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 talk about the Eye of Africa, the Eye of the Sahara. Yes, so yes. That's the last one that, that I have here as a potential contender. The Eye of, of the Sahara. This is a geographical formation so large in the Sahara that it can be spotted from space. It resembles an enormous bullseye. Uh, some will say an eyeball, but I think obviously it's, it's more of a bullseye. If you will, it, it's surrounded by mountains in a circular formation. It stretches across 40-kilometer region of the desert uh, known as Moratina. Now, for many centuries, only desert nomads were familiar that this even existed uh, and knew how to get to it. That is until the astronauts from the Gemini team photographed it in the 1960s, and it was so large and so clearly spotted, they even used it as a landmark upon re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere to know and to plot their course and their speeds. Later, the Landsat satellite took additional photographs and pictures, which were shared and studied more in depth to try to understand what the heck this thing could be. Originally, geologists jumped to the conclusion and believed it was most likely due to a giant asteroid crater. However, this was later disproved with rock and mineral samples from that area being collected and stating it was, if anything, a volcanic ordeal that caused this and not at all a meteor or asteroid. The impact and crash from above would have not left it in the formation state that it was. It is rather a geomatic dome with only earth-based rocks and minerals, however, dating back to approximately a hundred million years ago. However, it is not these aspects of the Eye of the Sahara that we're talking about this evening. There is another theory, one that is quite mind-boggling. This eye-shaped formation or bullseye with multiple rings around it could be the remnants of the ringed city of Atlantis that Plato described. See, Plato's description describes a series of rings, of rings alternating around. between um, ocean and, and land. Mm-hmm. So Now, again, this location is found in the deserts of Mortania, uh, 
there in the Sahara area. The speculation shows that the lost city might have actually been in plain sight the entire time. And of course, I'm talking about Atlantis. Just the environment had changed so dramatically and so drastically, no one thought to look there. After all, we have been taught the lost city of Atlantis should be at the bottom of an ocean or sea somewhere. But again, this area has been scientifically proven at one time to be underwater, or at least regions of it. So maybe, just maybe, we've been looking in the wrong place all this time, assuming that surely it must be at the depths of an ocean. Now buckle up. This is where things get a bit interesting. Factor in not only the facts shared by Plato that he wrote, uh, some of the only references, by the way, that we have in all of history of Atlantis comes from Plato. We have the shape confirmed, as Bill said, circular city with rings or layers attached with bridges. So we check that box. Obviously, the bridges are gone, but we, we have that. We have Plato's dimensions on the size that he shared in his original firsthand recognition, and that is 23.5 kilometers across and guess what? Give or take just a little, the eye of the Sahara is the same 23.5 kilometers across. But there's more. Plato stated it was surrounded by mountains, in particular a mountain range to the north. Yep, even from the space pictures, it is clearly shown a massive range of mountains on the north side of that bullseye. Satellite images, as well as geologists, actually finding distinct lines dictating water levels on various rocks there in that region, do in fact show the round area was surrounded by seawaters, most likely tied to that of the sea with salt and, and all the aspects being attributed there. Plato also goes on to state that Atlantis was destroyed in a single day and a night in misfortune and sank beneath the waves. We alluded to this with the tsunami. The scientific record shows the Earth went through a significant climate upheaval about 11,500 years ago, which does in fact pretty much line, a, line up with that same time frame. As a geologist and a scientist further study the satellite imagery of the Eye of the Sahara, they believe that the area does show what could be explained as the after-effects of a tsunami. A tsunami wave that none could have survived on a sheer cataclysmic scale kind of sounds like what Plato describes. Destroyed in a single day and a night by a misfortune that sank beneath the waves. Well, and, and despite this Eye of Africa being in the, the desert, uh, satellite imaging says that there are saltwater deposits in the area, mm -hmm. or the evidence of saltwater deposits. So, I mean, and we have some the point whale time, skeletons yeah. and stuff that is in the same region. At some time, it, it definitely looks like you know that that area wasn't the uh, the sandy desert. But correct me if I'm wrong. Africa would have been known to the people of Greece and and whatnot back then, yes. right? Does it mean? Maybe by different names, but yeah, yeah so the continent the obviously continent, would the, have been the discovered. Mass. So, I mean, if he was going to give you directions to Atlantis, you would think he could give you the directions to Africa and not to some place off Spain. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned that because in some of the research, Plato, how do I put this? Plato almost idolized Atlantis. Uh, to your point earlier, you know, some was, was kind of downplaying it. Maybe he didn't want the location to really be invaded by hundreds of thousands yeah. and thousands of people. You know, that's, that's a shot in the dark. But maybe this was his way of recording 
look, they had this city that was this large. It was built this well. It had all these rings, but I'm not going to tell you exactly where it's at. Because again, Plato obviously was one of the masterful, probably most intelligent minds that we had. So to your point, why couldn't he just freaking draw us a map? I mean, take a (laughs) map that's there and literally draw a map to it. But he chose not to do that for whatever reason. Now, of course, there's another theory, Bill, and you didn't touch upon it. If you watch any sci-fi whatsoever, <laughs> Atlantis is a giant spaceship. Is this from, is this from Stargate? Yes. I didn't, I didn't watch Stargate. And it Stargate. landed in the ocean, and no, it comes Eric, up from time to time. The, the pop culture I was exposed to said that Atlantis <laughs> was the birthplace of vampires, so <laughs> it, was, it was not a spaceship, obviously. <laughs> and some might say, well, obviously, if it's uh, if it landed ended up in the ocean, it started in the ocean. So it had web feet, web fingered humanoids that, you know, literally it, it was built under the water. The story of Atlantis is a Pandora's box. I mean, essentially, what part of it do you want to believe? Do you even want to try to believe any of it? Is there any factual aspects? I say, yes, there are factual aspects. But I don't think we have the full puzzle to look at. And I think the two of us doing independent research have literally bullseyed on a map multiple locations that kind of fit, you know, to well, some degree, the, the, the descriptions. One, the one off the coast of Spain matches his directions. Yes. But I feel like the Eye of Africa matches his descriptions as far as what it was supposed to look like. So now, if we're going to lose an entire city, continent, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. There has to be somewhere for it to go. Now, the arrangement of our tectonic plates on Earth would make Atlantis impossible. We're not missing any. There's not any gone. Or is there? Recent discoveries have revealed lost continents right now beneath Europe. Uh, This one is called Greater Adria. It would have been about the size and shape of Greenland, and it does rest beneath southern Europe. Basically, about 140 million years ago, Greater Adria and the European continent began to collide. You know, plate tectonics. Right. It took Earth science in high school. You kind of understand how they work. Mountain but, ranges and yeah, all kinds of stuff. mountain ranges and earthquake zones and faults and all that. Well, when Greater Adria and Europe collided, Europe won that battle. And it forced Greater Adria down so to where now basically Greater Adria is underneath Europe. So... You know, uh, it, it's underneath what is now Italy, Greece, and the Baltic region. Now, that's 140 million years ago. Obviously, that's not what happened to Atlantis. But it could explain, at least in part, that yes, you know, our our, our tectonic plates are in, in motion. And it is possible for one tectonic plate to overtake another one. And, and, and we lost a continent. Now, there are other such continents like that now. That, that Now that it's one has been discovered, it's suspected that there's probably more. Standard reason. Another lost continent is that of Zealandia. And it is a, a little more obvious if you look at a map. You can actually see the remains of Zealandia now. Hmm. Uh, maps of the ocean floor in the Pacific Ocean show an elevated region surrounding the islands of New Zealand. Now, this is more than just a raised part of the ocean floor. This actually represents the now mostly sunken continent of Zealandia, of which the islands of New Zealand and New Caledonia being the only exposed portion that's still above the sea. So that one seems, you know, it would be more possible... Plausible that, uh, that the continent could collapse on itself somehow. But yeah, you know, you, you, you've got these little islands. Well, I say little. New Zealand's not necessarily a little island. And it's got, you know, hobbits running all over the place. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's the island of New Zealand and New Caledonia. Those are like the solid, the solitary remnants of this once, you know, full on tectonic plate. You're, you're talking about all this and it, it, 
it comes to my mind, and I never thought about it this way, but we're all a bunch of surfers, dude. <laughs> we're just on these big plates floating around on lava that uh, riding the wave out, and uh, you hope you choose the high road, so to speak, and you're not forced underneath. Well, that's, uh, what is it, the uh, Marion? No, the the fault line in California. San Andreas. That's There are two plates there. Yes. That's what causes that, and one is actually going underneath the other one. I think they call it a subduction plate, and those are actually the, the places of the worst earthquakes in the world, which obviously would California reason. routinely, the East Coast routinely experiences horrific earthquakes. I think we're about to the end of our, our discussion on Atlantis here. I would be remiss, since we're looking at undersea anomalies, if I didn't at least talk about the Baltic Sea anomaly while we're here, Eric. All right, all right. I know you're familiar with the Baltic Sea yes, anomaly. yes. I thought you were going to say Megalodon for some reason there, but yeah. You know. No, you are absolutely familiar with the Baltic Sea anomaly, which is when they found the Millennium Falcon, Falcon. crashed to the bottom of the Baltic Sea. And there sea. we go back to the spaceship aspect. So, yeah, you want to go with sci-fi and whatnot. It is the shape of the Millennium Falcon. A scientist will say that it's a natural geological formation. I'd like to think that, you know, Star Wars did happen a long time ago, a long time, you know, and far, far away. <laughs> and they can travel faster than light. So why couldn't they come and visit? Hyperspeed. Crash in the ocean. Hyperspeed. There's a comic, semi-related, where it, it shows these these people hunting Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest, and they're chasing this Bigfoot all over the woods, and uh, the Bigfoot kind of stops at one spot, and it looks all sad and, and mournful before it runs away in the opposite direction, and then, you know, as comic books do, it kind of pans over, and it shows the wreckage of a ship, and uh, the pilot crashed behind the wheel in a certain distinctive Black vest and blue pants, <laughs> implying that Bigfoot is, of course, Chewbacca. <laughs> you know, you, I've, I've read a lot of Atlantis lore over the years, and I didn't even know about this Eye of Africa until I started doing the research. But, but it's either that region off of Spain or the Eye of Africa, or probably the closest to, to what Plato described as being Atlantis. So remember, you didn't hear it here first, but you heard it here second, and we have claimed <laughs> it's one of these two spots. Yeah, I would stake my reputation on that. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm right there with you. Folks, we hope you enjoyed yet another installment of Nightmares on the Lost Highway as we discovered the lost city of Atlantis. Thanks so much for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, 
but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.